contact, making contact, making, making, making contact. Today on Making Contact, we'll present the documentary, Symbols of Resistance, a tribute to the martyrs of the Chicano movement, a reflection on the untold stories of the Chicano movement with a focus on Colorado and northern New Mexico. Produced by Freedom Archives and narrated by Brenda Montano, the film delves into issues of cultural identity, student activism, land rights, and social justice in the face of police oppression. In part one of a two-part look at a history of the Chicano movement in the United States, we'll hear the voices of activists Priscilla Falcón, Kiko Martinez, Ricardo Romero, Deborah Espinosa, Marco Martinez, Joe Martinez, Lenny Foster, Juan Espinosa, Rita Malgares, and Reyes Lopez Tijerina. Let us die fighting in the barrios, in the jails, in the college campuses, in the fields, in the streets, for our raza. Let us all be organizers in every day of our lives. Chicano! Chicano! This is a commemoration for the fallen heroes that gave and gave and gave till it cost them their lives. They are not there. They are here in every one of you. Everyone here is Ricardo. Everyone here is one of the seas. The intense repression faced by mass movements for social justice such as the Chicano movement of the 1960s and 70s, led to the imprisonment and death of activists. Some of these courageous sacrifices are well known. Less well known are the martyrs of the Chicano movement. Forty years after nine young Chicano activists were martyred in Colorado, over 600 people gathered for a historic event in Denver to commemorate their legacy. What would Losez de Boulder and these other young people that died, what would their lives have been like? What contributions could they have made had they lived? The contradictions in the society during the time of the Vietnam War reached a peak, and that is right when these killings happened. The state underestimates the power of history, and history rarely stays put in a forgotten, disconnected past. And that is the door that we have opened today. Que viva la raza! Priscilla Bacon. In thinking about the experiences that led up to the Chicano movement, the 1960s, the evolution of, of popular struggle, political struggle, I think the, the communities were in search of identity. They were in search of, of a place that they could historically claim. Kiko Martinez. The Chicano movement gave us an option. It gave us a different perspective and a different way to dedicate ourselves. We had experienced colonialism. We had experienced the idea that we had been expulsed from the land, that we had, many of us had lost the language. We didn't understand this, that this was part of, the, of a system of oppression. They don't teach you an alternative history, they just teach you the straightforward American version of American history, right? We knew there had been a war against Mexico, but we didn't understand that that war involved us. 
what was really passionate for all of us was the knowledge that we were colonized people. This deeply penetrating prejudice fed us the notion that we were less than and we were certainly set apart. And that came through in the neighborhoods and in the schools in various ways. Everybody was fed up. Ricardo Romero. We had reached a point where there was, uh, there was no turning back, really, because we had never accomplished anything. We were at the bottom of every aspect of society, economically, educationally, every aspect. We were at the very bottom. And so we decided, okay, we're going to have to fight back, and we're going to have to start showing that we can become a power within the society. Calling oneself Chicano or Chicana recognized a connection to indigenous history and became a way to express a newfound pride in a shared cultural, ethnic, and community identity. You know, my roots are in northern New Mexico, and in northern New Mexico, there has always been in my lifetime talk about land and talk about what happened. Coming from the San Luis Valley, and my parents always believing in the land and being farm workers. My grandfather used to always start every story with, cuando la tierra era de, de nosotros, when this land was our land. Every story he ever told us. And growing up, I never understood that. But in the 1960s, when I became part of the Chicano movement, I reflected on that, and I said, oh my God, now I know what he meant. The land was stolen. We are, as Chicanos, we recognize that we have been on this land for hundreds of years. The Spanish came and conquered the natives. We are the natives. So now, being uh, mestizos, our mestiza, we have the indigenous blood. We have the European blood. We have connection to the continent. We have been here. This is our homeland. We began to search for our ancestors and who were they. And that led us back to the indigenous periods, the indigenous times of Mexico. People had been living in what today is called Central America, Mexico, and the Southwest for thousands of years before European conquest. Indigenous peoples created highly organized civilizations such as the Olmec, Maya, Toltec, Aztec, and Teotihuacan that had robust systems of trade, artistic production, architecture, agriculture, as well as writing systems and calendars. Deborah Espinosa. So to have someone now come forward and say, you're indigenous, you are uh, descendants of great people, the Mexica tribes, that was incredible. And it gave us pride for the first time. That was what was so burning. And that's what gave the movement, if you will, the personality or the identity that it had. And we were indignant. We were f***ed off that we were lied to, cheated out of our lands, that our families had gone through so much prejudice. We were angry, damn it. And we were going to go to the university and get our educations and go back and make a change. That's what we were there for. And, and that's what held us all together. And then in that process, we studied and organized and studied and organized. Our hard reality is that standing against injustice in the schools, in the fields, the courts, 
and the streets do not come without sacrifice. And for those who made the greatest sacrifices, those imprisoned, terrorized, or killed, we will always remember that the advancement of our people was because of you. Kiko Martinez. And there were a lot of formations in the Chicano movement. The Chicano movement wasn't monolithic. There were a lot of different formations in it. Tierina on the land question in New Mexico, Cesar Chavez and, and the unionizing of the campesinos in, in California, and a and, uh, little later on, the development of Rasunida, Jose Angel Gutierrez, and all these people. In northern Colorado, you had brown berets and black berets that began to say, we have been expulsed from high schools. The push-out rate was probably 60 to 68 percent. And these kids started saying, we want to be responsible for the kinds of education that we think should be taught. We need to have our history taught, our culture taught. And so there was this activism across the Southwest for Chicano studies, for Mexican-American studies. In Colorado, you had the Crusade for Justice, and they built an urban movement a youth movement that was based on the social conditions of what was going on in the Chicano communities in Denver. Emulating a lot of our movement after the Black Panthers and the Black Liberation Movement. You know, and that's how we started uh, dealing with the questions of the schools and dealing with the question of uh, uh, inequalities in all aspects of society and trying to develop a consciousness I really understood the Black Liberation Movement, the Native American Movement, the Puerto Rican Independence Movement, and all the world, that it was a worldwide movement. It wasn't just us. What really sparked the Chicano Movement was uh, the whole question of police crimes in our community, you know. And Ricardo Romero. In Colorado, it was... Uh, a young man that was uh, killed by the Denver police uh, beat him to death and at the Cowboy Inn in East Denver. And they gave him a real bad beating and killed him. And it was an occurrence that was happening not only in Colorado, but in California and Texas and New Mexico and Arizona, wherever we were. That's what sparked us in Colorado, and that's where we started. And, and we started... Uh, I guess, in a sense, to fight back. Daniel Valdez. They say that those who die in the struggle for other people live on forever in the immortality of their lives. The song is called Broken Hopes. Many times in life it seems that happiness can really be Marco Martinez. My brother Junior was a young man that was killed in, in a shootout with the Denver Police Department in 1973. We believe it, it was a direct response to his leadership and his activism with the Crusade for Justice at that time. The Crusade for Justice rose to national prominence in the late 1960s and 70s as a result of their work in Chicano communities confronting police brutality, opposing the war in Vietnam, and cultivating youth empowerment. The crusade created numerous institutions, including a community school called Escuela Tlatelolco, and also developed housing for teachers and organizers. Joe Martinez. My brother Junior, he was always quiet, but don't put up with no kind of guy, you know what I mean? 
I was more like passive. He was more like serious. He was a serious man when it came to uh, his commitment to the Chicano movement. Uh, he was a dance instructor at the Escuela Tlatelolco. He uh, was also one of the original leadership of the Black Beret Security Group. That's what got him involved with the Crusade for Justice. He was a, not an outgoing person that wanted recognition, but he was a very solid young man. He was representing the whole community that was being oppressed, and he felt that it was his obligation and his, his responsibility to defend the Chicano movement and the principles that it stood for. Junior was one of the youth leadership. He was subjected to numerous beatings. He did get beat up many times by the, I mean, severely. Severe one time, he got so beat up that oh, we called Corky, and Corky called lawyers, and they said they didn't have him. Well, they did have him. He was in jail. But he, they beat him so bad that two days later, my mom wanted to get him on. She couldn't recognize him. She could not recognize him. Her own son. That's how bad they beat him. And he told me that was the last time he was going to take a beating by the police. He would never take another one. And oh, I could remember this day distinctively. We were in my mom's kitchen. And uh, he was leaving. I was leaving. I said, okay, I'll talk to you later, bro. I'm going to eat got a brown paper bag and stuck a 38 in a bag. And, and I said, what are you doing, bro? You need to walk around with that gun like that? And see, yeah. And I said, what if he had stopped on a humbug? You know that messing with us? He said, well, you know what? If they stop me, it ain't a humbug. They'll stop me because they know who I am. And they're going to beat me again. And I don't want to get beat. Ricardo Romero. So the end result is, is the March 17th, the attack by the police and the terrorist apartments that the crusade had where most of the teachers that taught at the school lived and some other crusade members lived in. So, you know, Junior is killed and Mario Vasquez is arrested and, and uh, along with Ernesto Vigil and Ernesto shot in the back and uh, I don't know how Mario survived that because he was in the apartment that was blown up. Marco Martinez. When the altercation came, he had a gun, they had a gun, there was a shootout, he died, a police officer got shot at his hands. We had an autopsy performed by a different coroner that we brought from California. He said that Junior was shot two different times with two different weapons. So we feel that he was wounded in the original confrontation, but he was cornered in an area across from the Crusade for Justice. And we believe that they, they finished the job there. Junior confronted police outside of the terrace apartments over the harassment of another Chicano. A shootout ensued and Junior was chased and killed in a nearby alley. This led to a full-scale attack on the terrace apartments, during which an explosion destroyed most of the building. Crusade members defended themselves. Several were shot and injured and more than 30 were arrested. Many people believe the explosion was caused by the police. Following the raid, the city demolished the apartments. No one was ever charged for the murder of Luis Jr. Martinez. Though we seen our homes broken, we must go Marco Martinez. The first anniversary for his death 
There were over 10,000 people that came in support of him and marched in Denver, Colorado. Junior inspired all the neighborhood and gave them the inspiration to think, you know what, I'm as good as anybody. True revolutionaries are driven by love and the love of his people. And that's, that's what Junior believed in, and he was willing to die for it. For our struggles to be one. For our struggles to be one. Luis Junior. You're listening to Symbols of Resistance on Making Contact. This show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcast, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Now back to part one of Symbols of Resistance, a tribute to the martyrs of the Chicano movement, a documentary that explores the untold stories of the Chicano movement in the United States. One of the reasons that the attack came on my brother Junior and Crusade for Justice is at that time that was the era of Wounded Knee when the Native Americans took over Wounded Knee. On February 23, 1973, activists from the American Indian Movement occupied the town of Wounded Knee on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota to protest the corruption of the tribal government and the history of abuse of Native Americans by the U.S. government. The occupation was met with a heavy military response by the federal government, including the use of armored personal carriers, grenade launchers, and FBI agents, U.S. Marshals, and National Guard troops. Ricardo Romero. The week before the March 17th attack on the crusade, we had done a major demonstration in support of Wounded Knee in Denver. We had over 2,000 people that marched from the crusade to the state capitol in support of the brothers and sisters in Wounded Knee. Deborah Espinosa. Our origin story, our, our land is Aslan, the, the American Southwest, and we see ourselves as the descendants of, of the ancient peoples of Mexico. We have the bloodline to this land, and we will always have that bloodline. So when the native uh, people started AIM, naturally we came together. It's a natural process, and, and, you know, we've always respected all of the, the positions that the Native people have taken. We've supported them. Lenny Foster. I participated in the 71-day uh, siege of uh, Wounded Knee in 1973. When I came to CSU, I met all these young uh, Chicano activists and became friends with them in, in uh I uh, recruited some of them to join AIM, and they came with me to uh, Wounded Knee and picked up a gun and participated. They fought right along us in in the bunkers, and and so that was something that we realized, the seriousness of this movement, the struggle, the uh, Chicano movement, the Indian movement, the indigenous movement. I always say we, we, we began a worldwide indigenous movement. Ricardo Romero. You'll see this famous picture where this young Native American has an AK-47, and he says this was sent by the Chicano brothers and sisters uh, from the crusade and more are coming. 
who was flying in the supplies from the San Luis Valley? Rocky Madrid. He got shot and wounded, and he was taking the medical supplies to Wounded Knee. Juan Espinosa. After the occupation had ended, we kind of became part of the underground railroad of the American Indian movement. There were American Indians that were wanted for different reasons, and and it was the Chicano movement in Colorado that, that hid these guys out in many cases and moved them from point A to point B, and, and I, I'm aware of some of that, let's put it that way. Kiko Martinez. It's fair to say that the attack at the Crusade for Justice's school in March of 1973 was a consequence of that unity between the Chicano movement and the American Indian movement. Rita Melgarez. I want us to keep in mind that people die twice. Once as mortals and once in memory. I weep when memories are lost. Priscilla Bacon. Probably the biggest thing that we were able to understand at the beginning of the Chicano movement was how we were connected to Mexican history. The understanding of what the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was. The 1848 Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was an agreement forced upon Mexicans through the brutal and bloody conquest by the U.S. It created the current border by legalizing the occupation of northern Mexico. It granted some legal rights to land to some Mexicans remaining in the U.S., but most of these grants of land were not honored. The treaty also established cooperation between the U.S. and Mexico in fighting against native people, especially Apaches and Navajos. In the two generations that transpired after the War of 1848, there was uprisings across the Southwest, in New Mexico, in Texas, in California. Those two generations are the two generations that could still understand what it was like to live under the Mexican flag. And it was after 1915 that generations were now being born within the context of the United States. And people had been displaced from the land. We became an internal migratory labor force that was being exploited by the railroads, that was being used in the sugar beet fields, that was being used in the cotton fields and, and agribusiness, the meatpacking plants, the mining industry. Kiko Martinez. The town that I was raised in, Alamosa, was a railroad town. Periodically, there were always little blow-ups down there over water, over land, and stuff like that. So we were, that was something that was always being talked about in our homes. The Chicano movement kind of identified points of self-determination, and probably one of the most enlightening of, the, of that time period was Reyes Lopez Tijerina, who was involved in the land struggles of New Mexico. And again, that takes us back to, to understanding who we were and the creation of that border, uh, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and Tijerina comes on the scene and says, you know what, this land was ours. We're now going to reclaim the land based on all of these legal documents. And the Tijerina, the land grant thing in, in Rio Rebo County, was really what I guess brought home to us because it was on national TV. And it, it really made an impact. Reyes Lopez Tijerina led the Chicano land grant movement in northern New Mexico. Using the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which promised land to Mexicans, he organized the Alianza to demand these rights be met. Following a historic raid on the courthouse of Tierra Maria, the Alianza faced highly militarized U.S. repression. 
Tejerina and others were arrested and prosecuted for their resistance. Reyes Lopez Tejerina. Well, to bring justice and help the people and answer the needs of the Spanish-speaking people in the Southwest, especially in New Mexico, I had to establish an organization which would appeal to their needs, their interests, their aspirations, and their dreams. Since their life was bind uh, and attached to the land grants, the land grant and the pueblos, uh, therefore I had to uh, establish the organization based on the land question in order to, to attract their attention and to relay their message, their needs to the federal government, which needs were bound or bind by, by a treaty, an international treaty, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Ricardo Romero. The question of land base, that's essential to this, and Tijerina is raising that. And who of the big four, Corky Gonzalez, Cesar Chavez, Jose Angel Gutierrez, who goes to prison? Tijerina. Why? Because of the land. You, when you start to mess with the land, you're in the entrails of capitalism and imperialism, and, and you're messing with this, their federal structure that they've developed. And you're actually calling for a dismemberance of that when you're saying, this is our land base. Everybody you talk to today that's Mexican knows or will tell you this is all part, one's part of Mexico. Kiko Martinez. You know, that's another part of the Chicano movement that many of us got and some didn't. Because at that time, there were maybe 10 million of us. And today there's 15 million of us. But without that border, there's 200 million of us. And there's never been a good relationship between the United States and Mexico. There have been repeated invasions and takings of property, takings of land. Ricardo Romero. And so for that reason, we say to our people in the South, uh, come. You don't need papers to come here. Cross. Cross a la brava. Because every time a Mexican crosses the border illegally, they're reclaiming the North. This, this part of the country, you know, the land, the land is what gives you your, your identity and your pride. And once you have an identity, once you can develop your identity and you have pride in who you are, that's a big, that's a big hurdle for oppressed nations and people who are discriminated against. Because that's what they're trying to deprive you of is your identity and your pride. So that's when you become dangerous, when you have identity and pride. So a new movement is coming. I can feel it. I see it in our youth because we still haven't reached that pinnacle where we should be at. And it's gonna come again. And all of us older people, we have a responsibility to support the younger people. And they're going to create a movement based on their social conditions, their social reality, and they're going to develop their own leadership. And that's it for part one of Symbols of Resistance, a tribute to the martyrs of the Chicano movement, a documentary produced by the Freedom Archives in San Francisco, California. Next week, we'll bring you part two, 
Check out our website, radioproject.org, to get our podcasts, download past shows, or make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. The Making Contact team is Executive Director Lisa Rudman, Producers Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, and Salima Himarani. Associate Producer Aisha Chowdhury, Audience Engagement and Web Coordinator Dylan Hoyer. I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.